Hello and welcome to Hempton's podcast on the importance of witness evidence and a discussion around obtaining and finalising factual evidence ahead of claims and inquests. I'm Stephen Maratos and I'm joined today by Jill Muir. Um, Hempton's is a specialist health and social care law firm. We are both partners in our Newcastle office and we're part of the healthcare team which spans all, all five of the Hempton's offices. Today we're going to talk to you about um, a seminar that we've had. It was, it was our first in-person seminar in fact. Um, since the pandemic started, um, we had Martin Ford QC of One Crown Office Row, and we also heard from Georgina Nolan of Park Lane Plowden Chambers. And um, what did you think of it, Jill? I really enjoyed it. It was absolutely lovely to see people face to face for a change. It's very different to engaging with people on a Microsoft Teams call. So, um, yeah, it was lovely to see people and catch up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, that's the impression I got. I think people like the sandwiches as well. So it's always always good. Um, sandwiches but, and cake, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it was good. And, you know, the rules of evidence that we were looking at and the factual issues we were considering very much is depends on which forum you're, you're looking at, doesn't it? Yes, Martin um, talked a lot about the difference between the different forums and the different tests that are applied depending on which court or tribunal you end up in. So, for example, he was talking about the balance of probabilities test for um, inquests and professional disciplinary hearings, but then he does a lot of uh, criminal work as well, and that has the the different test on your evidence, doesn't it, of beyond reasonable doubt? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I thought his examples um, were quite good, explaining about the use of re-examination so when your witness has slightly let you down on on under cross-examination, there's that opportunity there with some careful re-examination. But also, I don't know what you thought of it, but I thought the examples with props were quite good. He was talking about those, wasn't he? And the importance of in, in clinical negligence and inquests. I think it's, it's very difficult to understand what we're actually looking at in terms of these, these cases. They're so, so complex, really. And he was explaining about case he'd had go to go to trial I believe but where it was only when the prop came out and the the skull was there that he could really show that the angle of insertion of the the surgeon to be able to cut that blood vessel meant that the, it really couldn't have happened as the claimant was suggesting it could have done and it, it needs that practical example of, of seeing how it how it would be done in the real world it's something we often forget when we're looking at things on paper all the time Yep, absolutely. I've seen that in inquests as well, where we dealt with a case involving a, a heart pump and the surgeon brought along the pump and showing where the plastic tubes went in and out of the body were really helpful to both the family, I think, and the coroner to show how the blood was flowing. But Martin also gave very useful examples of of how he addresses witnesses and explains to them how they should write a statement, because we know that it should be explained in the most simple of language, shouldn't it? And he gave an example of when he's telling someone how they should present their evidence, they should treat it as if they're, they've met an alien who's just landed. And if they were explaining to the alien how to drive, they would go through it step by step in chronological order. So the first thing you would do is touch the car door handle, pull it or turn it, then you step into the vehicle, you pull the seat belt over your shoulder. If you're in a manual, you put the, the gear stick in manual and that type of thing so that it's one yes, step definitely. after another. And that's how they should set it out in a statement with a basic chronology 
and explain as if they're speaking to somebody who doesn't have that medical background. Yeah, very much so, because even when we think of ourselves and and other, other practitioners, perhaps knowing the medical background, the judges won't necessarily, will they? So. Yeah, exactly. And, and for the family, especially, I think whatever forum you're in, whether it's in a civil court or an inquest, if they've got that simple explanation, it's always going to be of assistance. But we, we then also heard from Georgina Nolan. Uh, she's an assistant coroner for Newcastle and Northumberland. And she was talking about preparing evidence and also how coroners get rather cross with missing evidence. So what did you find interesting in terms of her talk, Stephen? Yeah, well, I I, th- I thought it was important to get back to those kind of basics. I mean, I, my my day to day is more claims than inquests, but it was really interesting to hear about those kind of the basic questions that the coroner is looking to answer: the who, the how, the when, and the where, and the fact that it's very much a fact finding exercise for the coroner. The coroner is not there to judge on liability. She very much explained very well, didn't she? That need to engage early with the coroner in terms of both the statements and the documents and and really try to be proactive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she made the point that if an issue is dealt with early on and in as much detail as possible, it may be that the coroner doesn't need to deal with that issue at a hearing further down the line. So she talked about funneling, didn't she, at the start of the inquest. Yeah. It's really open and you narrow the issues and narrow the issues. And if if the clinicians and the trust and the solicitors working with them can help the coroner to narrow those issues, you're getting in on the good side of the coroners and you're hopefully giving more information, more explanation to the family who may have struggled understanding what can often be very complex and difficult issues. Yeah, oh yeah, and absolutely. And and if there's the potential from a lot of our clients' perspectives and, and those clinicians, if if they can potentially avoid giving evidence at the inquest, if the coroner's happy, that's surely a good thing, isn't it? Yep. And I, I don't know many clinicians I've met who want to end up in court, either at an inquest or elsewhere. <laughs> so if we if we can persuade them at an early stage that they, they could help themselves by giving a full and clear statement. And Georgina also raised the issue of reminding the clinicians about the duty of candor. They should prepare their statement, not looking to be too defensive because that can just upset coroners and families. It should be absolutely based on the facts and it should not speculate at all on what could have happened with the ifs and buts. It just needs to comment on what did happen, what were the trust policies or or national standards, were they followed, if they weren't followed, why not? And of course, they should avoid acronyms because if the family's at the centre of the inquest, which they are, they need to be able to understand it. And they're not going to understand it very easily if there's lots of medical and complex language. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, There was an interesting discussion that came about, wasn't there, about the scope of inquests and how coroners might, um, well, coroners might keep it quite wide, but um, how we might want to limit the scope or, or find some guidance from them in terms of the scope of the inquest. What's your experience been in terms of that scoping exercise? Yeah, we, talk, we talked about how different coroners approach this in different ways, didn't we? And um, 
some coroners have, well, they all are clearly under an awful lot of pressure at the moment. We know this. But some coroners have been clearly obtaining comments from family members about what their concerns are. And sometimes these comments can be extensive. Um, I've seen examples where families have put in like 12 pages of questions. And once the trust has already got initial statements, they've sent them into the coroner. And then the coroner has clearly sought comments from the family and just sends out these 12 pages of questions and says, right, I want additional statements dealing with this. It's making an awful lot of extra work for the trust. And some of the questions might be completely unrelated to the four questions that the coroner has to answer. And certainly some trusts are quite rightly going back to coroners and saying, well, actually, can you please address the scope of your investigation? Can you narrow the issues? Because you know, something might be a communication issue where there's a concern from the family that um, something wasn't explained to them as much or as in, in, in as much detail as maybe it should have been. But the advice from Georgina was very, very helpful. And she was suggesting you need to go back to the coroner if you are getting this type of complaint. It should potentially be dealt with separately as a complaint. It shouldn't be part of the coronial investigation. So if in doubt, go back to the coroner and raise this issue. And if the coroner is not being of help here, there is also the possibility of raising it with the chief coroner. So just something to bear in mind. Yeah, that's right. And she she also mentioned, didn't she, kind of almost pre-inquest review hearings, raising the issue there to try and get that scope set down, didn't she? We also considered what do you do about missing evidence or missing witnesses? Yeah, well, th this is um, a problem we often have, isn't it? That um, certainly claims wise, things might come about a few years after we've had the index treatment. And it, not so much with inquest, but certainly people will move on. People might not be available as well. They might be out of the country, might simply not be able to locate them. With with the coroner's um, coronial proceedings, we certainly need to be the impression and the information being set out as well. We need to be communicating that to the coroner. Um, we need to be letting them know early on that we're having difficulties with issues. But also we need to think about how we might be able to have other people that can talk to the issues. This is where the, the coroner is fact finding. So it might be that we haven't got the person who was involved in the treatment at the time, but we might be able to get someone who's now in their role, who's able to talk about the, the procedures, the the way the, the trust worked in a particular on a particular issue or particular way. And in terms of documents, Yes, we might be struggling to locate documents. If that is the case, we've got to communicate it to the coroner. When, when we move on to it in, in a claims context, that's where we need to be looking at that missing evidence and we need to be thinking about how we're going to get a witness to speak to that. So it's working out whether we have witnesses that can explain by virtue of their standard practice and their usual approach. And the courts we were hearing very much have an not a generous approach, but they do allow for evidence where where a clinician is explaining that, well, this is what I would usually do. And the fact that there are not records obviously is a problem, but the fact they can explain it by virtue of how they have done that operation uh, so many hundred times previously gives that information as to how it was likely to have been performed or what, wait, what steps they would have taken on this occasion.
Yes, it's it's never ideal, is it, when you've got a gap in the records, <laughs> which is just the gap that is being complained about. Yeah. But if you can't find the records, you just can't find them. And exactly. as you say, you just have to give an explanation about what steps have been taken in order to locate those records. So that statement might come for, from someone in the medical records team. It might come from a clinician as well. Um, but I've seen statements, as I'm sure you have, where um, it, it's, it just demonstrates that a full and thorough search has been done, not just in the records department, but the consultant's room has been gone through. Um, the secretaries have been asked to check their cabinets if they have them um, so that you can present to the coroner or to the judge exactly what has been done to try to locate these records. Inferences can yeah. still be made, can't they? Exactly. And it's those inferences. And that's why as well with with factual witnesses where um, I was saying with the inquests, we, we might be able to get someone else to, to comment on issues if a witness has moved abroad. On a claim, we might be struggling to find the, the factual witness and the, the fact we don't call them, inferences might be drawn in terms of in, into that. Whereas if we've shown the steps we took to try to locate them, the GMC address search, the checking with HR departments for the addresses, then we can change the weight the court puts on the fact we failed to disclose a statement from someone. It can yep. really hopefully hopefully go some way to, to dealing with it. But but what have been your particular kind of issues you've had with witnesses on cases? Any good 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 or bad examples of of witnesses? Oh there's lots, isn't there? Um well, you've got the, the situation where, as you've just said, sometimes litigation happens several years later, especially when you're dealing with, for example, a brain damaged child who's who suffered the injuries at birth. Um, so I've recently had um, or I approached a witness who we tracked down. She was no longer um, at the same trust where the, the birth had happened. Um, the birth was in 2011. And the trust had quite rightly done an internal investigation shortly after the birth. This witness was a midwife at the time. She'd given a statement for the trust's investigation, but it wasn't a particularly detailed statement. Um, the letter of claim came in, I think, earlier this year and made very lengthy and specific allegations. And we needed her input on these allegations. So um, I contacted her initially by email. Um, and she was very, very reluctant to engage. She said that um, the events were too long ago. They therefore she couldn't recall anything more than was in the original records or her statement at the time. And I, you can see that, can't you? It's it's not particularly yeah. nice to be contacted blue. out the blue. Yeah, you don't remember much from 10 years no. ago, do you no. really? So, um, but. But she has eventually agreed to a telephone call next month. You and I discussed it, didn't we, of how to persuade her. Um, so Stephen and, <laughs> and my powers of persuasion hopefully are going to persuade her that she should assist. And that was telling her about the potential value of the claim. It's a brain damaged child, so it's potentially very, very expensive case. And if she can assist in just helping us assess the merits of this case, whether we're going to defend it, whether it's one to settle. Um, and she's accepted that and hopefully will now give a statement. Um, so that's been helpful. And then 
you've got difficult witnesses as well, haven't you, who don't want to be involved. Um, and they can sometimes be quite aggressive about not wanting to be involved. Um, I had one where it was a case, again, a brain damaged um, baby case, your typical situation where three women need an urgent cesarean section. There's only two available theatres. So the consultant in charge has to make an assessment of which um, which lady has to wait. Um, the registrar who carried out cesarean section had moved to India. We managed to track her down in India um, with an email address. And I used a similar approach to the one I've just described. But she was really, really not wanting to get involved, said that um, she didn't have to. Uh, what was I going to do? Because she was in India and I was in England. Um, and I kept trying and I tried to persuade her, giving her all the facts, explaining how she could assist. Um, and she eventually said that she could not assist and that she didn't want to hear from me again because by um, just by receiving an email from me, it was affecting her mental health. So we had to just draw a line under that one and move on. Um, we had to settle the yeah. case, unfortunately, but that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, it's taking all those steps possible, isn't it, to try and exactly. persuade them? Um, yeah, you have to consider why are they being difficult? What are they? Is there a fear of the unknown? Is there a fear of being called to attend court? Are they worried about criticism either by the court, by colleagues, by professional bodies? Are they protecting colleagues? You know, it's all that type of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot. A lot. I mean, my my experience in a strange way is is almost the the opposite in terms of the unhelpful. I, I've had witnesses that have been too helpful. I've had <laughs> I, I've had I've had problems with them because the, their statements that they they prepare are, are almost they're they're too too involved and they cross over. And I think medics themselves we have our experts don't we but in many instances the expert is a peer of the person that they are criticizing aren't they so um and, and we have factual witnesses that want to provide extra information they want to provide extra guidance and um i've, I've had some who, who are amending their statements to refer to literature and to refer to what they think the bolam standard is or what they think <laughs> A reasonable body of doctors would be doing, and it's it's quite hard to rein them in to say, well, actually, look, your evidence is on factual issues. Um, let's let's stick to these factual issues. Um, it's good that they're they're helping, obviously. Um, I, I was just thinking that sure, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's making sure they understand their role in the in the process. Um, but again, I, another another instance where we want that engagement is because we want to make sure that people's statements are looking at are their own statements, don't we? So we 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 want people to be considering them and looking at them in detail because what we don't want is to serve five statements from five doctors which all have exactly the same wording in them and exactly the same phrasing. And the court looks at that and realizes that someone else has um, put, basically put it under the nose of the doctor and asked them to sign it. Um, yep, which is a dream, a dream for cross-examination, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, and um, I think there's examples, aren't there, of those cases where everyone, you, you go through it, and all all five family members used exactly the same phrasing, and it just it just looks, it, it's taken away from what is 
probably a truthful statement. It just looks like, well, it's it's over lawyered, I think is a is the phrase. And and so we want our clinicians to be looking at their statements and actually thinking, spending the time to think about what it is that they're saying and, and, and amending it. But we don't want them to be going straying into that expert expert position. Yep, absolutely. But have you I think we talked as well about creative creative witnesses and, and claimants being creative on case. I think you had quite a good example of a Cordrequina case you'd you'd had. Yes. Um, well, I did 17 years on the claimant side before I, I came over to this side and um, I gave the example of a, a, a Cowder Aquina case where time issues are always um, the key point in the arguments. So with earlier diagnosis and decompression surgery on the spine, would the outcome have been different and better for the claimant? And that timing point was really, really key. Liability was being denied by, it was an ambulance trust um, and the acute trust. And we managed to get a statement from the radiologist. This is me acting for the claimant. So we approached the radiologist within the trust and said, can you tell us what the time scale would have been had the paramedics brought this gentleman straight into A&E? What would then have happened when would he have had the MRI? And I think this radiologist had quite a lot of sympathy for the situation that this claimant found himself in. He was no longer able to work. Um, he'd lost all bowel and bladder function and all sexual function. And he gave us a statement which was really helpful and said, well, actually, had that been the timeline, he would have been in the MRI uh, machine report would have been prepared on the imaging by this time and that gave us a causation case so it, it settled for quite a substantial amount of money yeah um, and i think with a lot of help from that witness because without him we didn't have that key, the, the claimant didn't have the key information about the time scale that timeline being the most important thing in that type of yeah. case yeah absolutely absolutely i guess that's an example isn't it of uh, thinking around your case and around the witnesses you could be approaching or, or considering. Um, yes, exactly. Certainly from a defendant's perspective, I think it's slightly different to your example, but I think we sometimes need to think about witnesses beyond just the key allegations to be able to speak to and explain um, factual causation in terms of what might happen in the hospital. Um, yeah, I think it can be useful in those circumstances to have statements about what else was going on on the ward, who else was waiting for a theatre at the same time, which can explain delays. You know, if, if there's been a massive um, car crash in Newcastle and lots of patients are being taken to a particular A&E department, that might explain why the claimant wasn't seen within a set timescale. So if we've got that additional information, not just about the claimant, obviously not giving away names or other patient details, that's entirely inappropriate, but just giving a picture of what else is going on so that when that set of facts goes to an expert or goes to the judge in a court or a coroner, there is an explanation there. Uh, and it may well be that that gives a valid explanation as to why something happened or didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah uh, good, good. Um, so, so I think, really, that, that, 
I mean, what would you say if we if we were to wrap it up? And you know, is there a would you have a top tip in terms of witness evidence and oh, a top tip? Yeah, because um, of course it's all top tips, isn't it? But I think for me, it's getting clinicians to engage early and get them to give an early statement that has been prepared with reference to the records, not just a, a three paragraph. Well, this happened because of X, Y and Z. You need a bit more background to it. You need a chronology. And if they engage early, it might go away, whether it's being called to an inquest, whether it's being involved in any other set of proceedings. If they give a full and detailed statement early on, it could well save them and the trust or the GP surgery or their insurers. It could save them an awful lot of time and money later. So what about you? What's, what yeah, would be your so top tip? So, so, so am I, am I summarising that top tip as a, um, it wasn't really bullet points, but are we saying early, <laughs> early statements? Is Absolutely. That Let's yes. bullet point it. Yeah. Um, your bullet point can be early statements. Mine would probably be really that point that Georgina was making. Don't sit on things. Um, if you've got a problem, you address it head on. Um, deal with it with the coroner. Um, like you, mine's not really a bullet point either. It's a, you know, <laughs> let, let, let's kind of um, deal with it with the coroner, explain explain you've been having problems, but also on a claim side as well, isn't it? it? It's quite easy to get drawn into your own case and to start looking at your factual evidence and to start seeing what you want to see. So you start yeah. looking at it and thinking, OK, we, we're dealing with that allegation. We're dealing with the, the issues. Oh, we, well, we've not located the doctor that saw the patient later. We've not located the radiologist, the the other clinician, but it's OK because we've got the main one being dealt with. And then as the case goes on, because it goes on for so many years, you forget that you need to deal with those facts and we've not got those facts. So we, we, we're never going to be able to defend some, some factual issues because we've never got that person. Better to have realised that early on yeah. and appreciated it. Whereas had we taken those steps when we appreciated we hadn't located the other doctor, we might have settled a case, we might have taken a different approach. But by setting it to one side and trying to keep going, all we've done is is prolong things. And, and as you and I both know, usually translates to more money and, and costs, doesn't it? So yep, um, absolutely. And, and a lot more time for all the um, clinicians and, and trust staff as well. So, so I think my bullet point uh, to, to summarise that lengthy paragraph is probably kind of don't sit on things and deal straight away. So, so there are bullet points. But well, thank you very much, Jill, and um, thank you all for listening. We'd love to hear from you with any comments you have or any suggestions you've got for particular areas you'd like us to cover in future podcasts or in future seminars. Uh, today's podcast has been on the back of an in-person one, so. If you've got any suggestions for that, let us know. If you've got any suggestions for podcasts, let us know as well. Um, you can email us. Um, my email is s for Stephen dot maratos m a r a t o s at hempsons.co.uk and Jill is uh, g dot muir m u i r at hempsons.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye.